The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. big is your God? That's, that's the question that we've been dealing with. Uh, you might turn back over to Genesis chapter 39 this time. In the life of Joseph, we have learned some things already. We've learned that Joseph, who was a good young man, but a flawed young man, a man with great potential, a man chosen of God to serve God but also a man who was flawed and had problems and suffered great 
tribulations. When we last saw Joseph, we left him in Genesis chapter 37, in the last verse, in a prison in Egypt. Now just by the way, chapter 38 is a little side story that's not, I don't mean that it's a story that's insignificant in any way, but it doesn't deal with Joseph, and that's why we're skipping chapter 38. But I'll tell you that, um, that the story of Joseph deals squarely with the question of how big was Joseph's God, and it's a question relevant to us today. How big is our God? Because our God is the same God as Joseph's God. Now, I, I want to just say this again. I may not remind you every time we come back to this story, but I do want us to understand a couple of ground rules about the story of Joseph. Remember, the story of Joseph is not the story of God protecting and guiding his people in spite of their disobedience. That's not what Joseph's story is about because Joseph was an obedient child of God. Does God protect us in spite of our disobedience sometimes? Yes, he does. But when you know better, you ought to do better, <laughs> okay? There were times in my ignorance when I was a younger man, when I didn't know the things that I know today about what God's will is for his people, when God, uh, he didn't excuse my sin, but he was able to deliver me in spite of my sinful walk and my disobedience. But don't put yourself in that position. That's not what Joseph's all about. Joseph's story really isn't about his brothers. Joseph's story is about him, Joseph, and the God that Joseph serves and how that God is able to protect Joseph and preserve Joseph and guide Joseph by overruling the wicked deeds of wicked men. And by the same token, sort of a corollary there, Joseph's story is not the story of God sending wicked men and wicked deeds Joseph's way in some sort of master plan in some kind of corrupted Romans 8.28 idea, okay? God hates sin. Let's get that out in the open. Sin is exceeding sinful in the sight of God. He does not orchestrate the sins of men. You want to blame somebody for sin? Blame Adam, not God. God didn't cause his brothers, Joseph's brothers, to cast him into a pit out of jealousy and hatred. They did that of their own volition. They did that of their own sinful motivations, okay? But what this story is, is the story rather of God having the ability, because he is God, to overrule providentially the obstacles thrown up by Satan to the purpose that God has for the life of his obedient child of God. That's what it's about. So remember that. Now, you know, we have other stories. We can talk about the prodigal son. That's the story of God delivering somebody from their own disobedience, okay? But that's not what this story is. This is the story of God being with Joseph who was obedient and trying to follow him, okay? And remember this too. When we ask the question, how big is God? <clears throat> or how big is your God? The question is not how big we're going to make God, <laughs> okay? God's big is bigger anyway than anything we can make, okay? The question is, though, how do you see him? How do we perceive him? Do we understand how big he is? 
And that's what this story is all about. And last time we saw that God, Joseph's God, was big enough to trust in the midst of adversity. Okay, now, a little different question. We're going to have to ask ourselves a question here. Is he big enough to trust in prosperity? Because what we're about to see is Joseph rising up. And even in the midst of bondage, he's rising to the top. He's, uh, he's being put in a position of authority. And we're about to go back to the story in chapter 39 that we dealt with a few weeks ago, actually. The question then was how to avoid temptation. But the primary focus today uh, that I want us to get is not so much about avoiding temptation, although we should, and there are some great lessons here. The focus today is, is when you are prospering, uh, when, 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 when you're finally delivered to whatever extent you're delivered, is your God big enough to trust even in prosperity? And maybe another question is, when you're put to the test, you need to ask the question, who am I? Or perhaps a better question is, whose am I? Who do I belong to? Keep your finger in Genesis 39, because we're going to come right back. But if you'll turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to answer that question from the outset. Whose am I and who am I? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to sort of the heart of the whole book of 1 Corinthians right here. Look in verse 19. And he's talking in the context of fornication and avoiding fornication. Isn't that kind of ironic that that's what we're going to be reading about with Joseph today? But he says in verse 19, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God? Now listen, and ye are not your own. Amen. Who am I? Well, I'm not my own. So whose am I? Verse 20, For ye are bought with a price. Boy, that price, we don't have time this morning to plumb the depths of that. We don't have time in our lifetimes to plumb the depths of the cost of that price. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body <laughs> and in your spirit, which are God's. There were some people called uh, Gnostics back then in that day, and they believed that the body was all bad, anything fleshly, earthly was all bad, and the spirit was all good. And what that led them to was to say, well, it doesn't really matter what I do in my body. I can live like I want to because my spirit's pure, and that's what's going to heaven anyway. That's baloney. <laughs> that's baloney. According to this, he says, you glorify God in your body. You live right. You do right. But why? Who am I? I am not my own. I am bought with a price. Whose am I? I am the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. And we're fixing to see about Joseph. Right about now, he needs a big God. And he needs to remember who he is in relation to that God. So let's go down to Egypt with Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. We begin with Joseph, a slave in Egypt. And Joseph, in verse 1, was brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph. 
And he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he had, he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not aught he had save the bread which he did eat. <laughs> and Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. What we see here is that even in the midst of trouble and trial, God is able to deliver his child to a position that he, that he desires for him to be in and that he needs to be in. He's in a position of authority now. He is prospering. He is he is rising up. But notice that this is still a man who is a slave in Egypt. And he's not really a man yet. I'm sorry, Abel. He's 17, okay? <laughs> he's a young man. Uh, 18. I, I guess we're considered men at that point. But, but the truth is we don't really know at 18 what we know at 58, okay? We, we learn a lot in those 40 years, you know? And so, so he's still a young man. He's still, in a sense, he's a child. He's a boy on the verge of becoming a man. And now he's been faced with circumstances that could easily have destroyed his faith. I mean, I'll tell you something. If my family had sold me into slavery, that would shake the foundations of my life and my beliefs. My belief system would suffer. My faith would suffer you see, it's not a good experience. And let me tell you, this, we, sometimes we think about, oh, well, he got put in, in a prison and he brought, brought down to Egypt. He's a slave. And that's a kind of exciting experience for a young man to leave home and see all this stuff. Look at Psalm 105. I want to see how, what you think about the experience Joseph's having. Psalm 105, verse 17. God here is through the psalmist is recounting the history of the, of the, the nation of Israel and how he's, that he's delivered them over and over. And listen to what he said in verse 17. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. Now listen, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Let me tell you something. The experience Joseph was having wasn't no fun experience. It wasn't some kind of vacation. He wasn't going down to Disney World, okay? He wasn't going out to see the world like young men like to do. He was bound in fetters, in pain. It wasn't something he enjoyed. We read elsewhere over in, I think, the 42nd chapter or so of Genesis that when, when his brothers finally repent before Joseph, when they figure out uh, they don't, still don't know who he is, and they're talking among themselves, they said, we are being afflicted now because we didn't listen to the anguish of our brother." He was in anguish. He was rejected. He was hurting. He was not in a good place. He was faced with circumstances that could have easily destroyed his faith. He was down in Egypt. He was far from home. He was among strangers who had a strange language, who had a strange culture. He was in a, he was in a distant location. He was in desperate circumstances. Right about now, it would be easy to forget who he was and try to redefine himself. But listen to me, child of God. You remember this. When you're in the midst of troubles that neither circumstances nor geography define who you are. Neither your circumstances nor your location. 
It matters not where you are. It matters not what kind of circumstances you face. I don't care how painful the experience is. I don't care, care how uh, desperate the situation is. I don't care how hurtful the things are happening that are happening to you, beloved. It does not matter. That does not define you. Joseph was faced with circumstances that sometimes causes people to lose faith. I'm done with daddy's religion. I'm done with mama's faith. I'm done with this so-called God that here I am in the midst of troubles and he still hadn't delivered me. <laughs> That's the time you need to hold on. <laughs> That's the time you need to wait. Joseph, in the midst of these circumstances, was also faced with choices that could easily have derailed his life. You know, wouldn't it have been logical and understandable if he said, man, I just got to do what I got to do to survive. Now, I, I, know, I know there's all this stuff about the God Jehovah and the covenants that he's made with, with my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I, I get all that and that's all well and good for church. That's all well and good for Sunday morning, but you just don't know, preacher, what Monday morning is like. I got to do what I got to do to get by. That's the world's advice. The <laughs> world says when the circumstances seem to show that God has abandoned you, you just might as well go ahead and abandon God. Just do what you got to do to survive. But you know, it's at this very Time that Joseph most of all needs to remember who he is and be grounded in the truths of his walk with God. See, we talked about his dysfunctional family. <laughs> Jacob, who was uh, just a terrible daddy. I mean, just played favorites and there was jealousy and there was, you know, one of his older brothers even had an affair with one of his mother's other Sister wives or whatever you call it. <laughs> I mean, how messed up is that? How, how big of a problem can you, how big of a messed up family, bigger of a messed up family can you come up with? But even in the midst of all of that, Joseph clearly still taught his children about God. Joseph still clearly knew about God because for one thing, God sent him dreams. He not only had heard about God, he'd had an encounter with God. He'd had an experience with God where God had sent him some dreams. And you're going to find later on, Joseph makes the statement about those dreams. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He, he trusted, see, in his mind and his heart, he had faith that God was still who he was. And at this point in his life, as we're about to see, he needs to ask himself, who am I in relation to God? And you see, in the midst of these circumstances that could have destroyed his faith and the choices that he could have made that could have derailed his life, he was faithful to the God who had loved him and had a purpose for his life. Don't ever let people tell you that just because we're primitive Baptists and we don't believe in the absolute predestination of all things that God doesn't have a purpose in, for your life. We do believe that. Amen. It's just not God 
orchestrating it and causing these wicked things to happen in order to get you there. It's him overruling the things that occur in life and providentially caring for you to get you to the place where he wants you to be. And your obedience is important in that. So there's one fact here that gives us hope. One big fact. You say one little fact. No, it's one big fact. In the second verse that I just read in your hearing in Genesis 39, it says, and remember, he's a slave in Egypt and a stranger in a strange land. He's in a bad place. But it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Brother Austin introduced services some years ago and made the statement, I'd rather be in the prison with, with Joseph and God there than outside the prison free without God. See, the Lord was with Joseph. You know, you know what <laughs> Isaiah chapter 43 says? Now, now, Isaiah hadn't written this yet, but I believe Joseph is a living demonstration of this. In Isaiah 43, the very first verse, it says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Remember, who am I? I'm his. Whose am I? I'm God's. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Why? Because you're so much better than everybody else. No, for I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and, and Seba for thee. I am the Lord thy God. You know, that's all you really need to know, isn't it? I mean, listen, you're facing death, you're facing sickness, you're facing disease, you're facing bankruptcy, you're facing problems in life, you're facing rejection, loneliness, bills too big to pay, uh, too many bills to pay, whatever it may be. What do you need? You need to know that God is God. That's really all you need. I am the Lord thy God. And see, this God that he was faithful to is a God who is faithful to him. In Psalm chapter 3, I, I love the third, third Psalm. I love all the Psalms. They're just so good. When I'm down and out and need help, I usually go to the Psalms. Listen to Psalm chapter 3. Now, now, there's a little introductory in most of the Psalms that tell who wrote it and the circumstances in which they wrote it. And I know it's inspired by God. But God uses those circumstances sometimes to inspire me and to write some precious, very important words. Notice that it says, A Psalm of David... When he fled from Absalom, his son. Now we often say the worst thing that can happen to somebody, a parent, is to lose a child. Okay? I'm not so sure that's true. I think the worst thing that could happen to a parent is what happened to David, which is that there, he had a son get after him to kill him. Wouldn't that be even worse? I'd rather, I'd rather lose a child than to have a child... In, in a relationship with me so bad that they wanted to kill me and, they were, and I was having to flee from them. Wouldn't that be horrible? My grandmother said one time, live troubles is worse than dead troubles. I've never forgotten that, you know. Death is terrible, but things that are, there are things that are worse than death, and I believe David was experiencing it here. Absalom, his son, who he loved dearly, was coming after him to kill him. 
How much more desperate are the circumstances than that? And notice what he said. Lord, how they are, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. That's kind of where Joseph's at, isn't it? That's kind of where he is today. He's in Egypt as a slave in the house of one who owns him. I've never been owned by anybody. I felt like I have been owned by the bank, you know, with debt and all that. But I've never really been owned as a slave by anyone. But Joseph was owned and, and there's no help for him in God. They didn't even know his God down in Egypt. They were serving Ra, the sun God, and all other kinds of gods. There's no help for him in God. But look at David. But thou, Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Selah. Aren't you glad that that didn't say he heard me out of the temple that's down here on earth? He heard me out of uh, the, the bishop's uh, chambers. He heard me out of the Vatican. He didn't. Notice, that's not where he heard. He's in his holy hill. Isn't that something? He's, he sits high up in his holy hill. He sits high, as the old preacher said one time. Oh, praise God, he looks low. <laughs> he looks low. My God sits high, but he looks low. He, he is the lifter up of mine head, David said. In verse 5, in the midst of his son chasing him. Joseph, you're in prison. You're in a slave in Egypt. In the midst of that, he said, I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. And now look at verse six, which is the one I really like and what I really wanted to get to. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people that have set themselves against me round about. Did you know that one with God is a majority? The old prophet Elisha had a servant. And Elisha made a lot of folks mad. He got, a lot of folks got after Elisha for preaching the truth. And he camped out on a hillside one day. And the king of Assyria, I believe it was, but whoever it was, the king came after him. And encamped round about this hill, all the way around. And his servant got up and looked out and said, my master, what in the world are we going to do? Now, I probably would have done the same thing. I was... I'd be, I'd be nervous. You got 10,000. If I walked out the door and there were 10,000 soldiers surrounding this place, I'd be very nervous. The old prophet didn't blink an eye. He just bowed his head and he prayed to God. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And his eyes were open and he saw chariots of fire circling that hillside between the old prophet and his servant and those tens of thousands of soldiers and armies out there. And he said, Master, them that be with us are more than they that be with them. Isn't that something? <laughs> now, as far as you could see with the naked eye, this, this physical eye, all you could see was the old prophet and his servant. But boy, when those spiritual eyes got open, you could see the chariots, and the servants of God, the angels of God, protecting that old fella, that dear old servant. You know, that's, that's kind of what 
David needed to remember here. That's kind of what Joseph needs to remember when he's a slave in Egypt. That's kind of what you and I need to remember when we're facing the troubles that we're facing in life. And Joseph never forgot this. He was a slave in Egypt, but he never forgot it. But now look, he's about to meet another character. We've talked about it before, like I said, and and we're going to replow some of that ground today, but not a lot of it. This slave in Egypt is about to meet the strange woman. Look at verse 7 of Genesis 39. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, lie with me. Now remember where we are, where Joseph is rather. Joseph is at a place where if he doesn't remember who he is and whose he is, then he's liable to just do anything to survive. It would be understandable. The master's wife comes in and he sees an opportunity to progress in authority, to rise up higher in in security. You know, Joseph, do what you got to do to survive. Look at verse 8, but he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now we're going to come back to that because you're going to see how strong a believer Joseph was. And we see that here, and there's some important points from that. But notice that what happened in verse 10 is, it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. Notice some things about the temptation. We said this before, but I want to go over some of it again. Temptation usually hits you when things are going well. That's usually when it, go, when, when it hits you. You're not expecting it. You're kind of going along. Things are good. Get ready. You're going to be tempted. <laughs> he wasn't seeking it. He wasn't after it. But it found him as it tends to do. I read this quote. And I thought it was pretty good. It kind of describes my situation. I don't know about yours. Oscar Wilde, a playwright, said this. He said, I can resist anything but temptation. <laughs> you ever think about that? <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty good. I can resist anything but temptation. (laughs) I tend to have a problem with temptation. If it wasn't for temptation, I wouldn't have a problem with sin, right? (laughs) That's where we all are, correct? Well, see, Potiphar had promoted Joseph, remember? He was now doing better than he was when his feet were hurt with fetters in the the pit and in 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 the prison. And now he's up there, but you better remember Elijah at this point. Because now's the time to watch out. Elijah's darkest valley wasn't the mountaintop experience of calling down fire and fighting with the uh, the prophets and priests of Baal. It was the aftermath when he got down and out and he began to go go down. You know that works that way for a church. The problems don't usually happen in the midst of the the main battle. It's the aftermath. I haven't seen a church yet that had a problem at an annual meeting. <laughs> at least our church hadn't. We're on the top of the mountain after our annual meeting. I said, next week you better watch out. Because temptation not only hits you when things are going well, it hits you where you're weakest. It hits you where you're weakest. He was far from home. He had just survived an arduous journey of being kidnapped, 
I mean, surely he's thinking, surely that's the worst the devil can throw at me. But you know, the devil specializes in the surprise attack. We, we, don't turn, we won't turn there because we did a few weeks ago, but sometime read the 25th chapter about the verses 17, 18, and 19 of Deuteronomy. It talks about what Amalek did. Amalek came from behind and hit the children of Israel when they were spread out where they were the weakest. He didn't come on with a head-on attack. He came from the back and from the side. And that's what the devil will do. Temptation will also hit you where you are most vulnerable. Said already, this is about a 17, 18, 19-year-old young man full of vigor and life. Need I say any more? Haven't we seen this so many times in real life, depicted in the movies? Some older lady comes in to try to tempt a younger man. What usually happens in those circumstances? And she was relentless in her pursuit. She came by day by day. And there were many excuses he could have made. He could have said, well, nobody will ever know. You know, or who could blame me? Or, you know, this isn't going to hurt me just one time. And, you know, like David, he could have said, it's just going to be a one-night stand. David, how'd that work out for you? I'm sure that's all he expected it to be when he went into Bathsheba. Just a one-night stand. And oh, the sword never left his house after that. Temptation usually hits you where you're most vulnerable. But I want you to see what a strong believer Joseph was. What, how, how strong he was. Joseph was firm in his faith. You notice he wasn't ugly to her. He didn't slap her down. He didn't yell and scream at her. He just said, I can't do this. You know, that's the way we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be. We're not, people call us hate mongers. <laughs> Because we stand on the truths of God's word. Let me tell you something. If you ever yell and scream at somebody who doesn't agree with you about something in the word of God, you may be right, but you're wrong. Right. Right. That's the servant of the Lord must not strive to be gentle to all men, apt to teach, and so forth. He wasn't self-righteous. Well, I'd never do that. <laughs> not me. Don't you ever get self-righteous. You get in trouble then for a lot more reasons and just what's facing but he was firm with her he was courteous and notice what he did first thing he did he remembered his obligation to his master he said in verse 8 behold my master wotteth not or he knows not what is with me in the house and has committed all that he hath to my hand there's he goes on to say nobody's greater than i the only thing he knows is what he's eating he doesn't even know what he's got i i hand feed it to him i give him what he eats and that's the only thing he knows because he trusts me okay he remembered his obligation to his master but he also more importantly remembered his obligation to his god he said how then can i do this great wickedness and sin against God. You know, the sin he committed would not have been against Potiphar. He would have wronged Potiphar, but he would have sinned against God. Do you understand me this morning that, that when we do wrong to our brother or sister, we are hurting them and we are wronging them, but we are not sinning against them because they're just sinners like us. But when you do that, you are sinning against God. And let me say to you, beloved, sin is not some little misstep. It's not a little mix-up or a little mess-up. It is exceeding sinful. Sin is exceeding 
sinful. He knew what God thought about sin. He knew how bad God hated sin. And he didn't have the benefit of the cross yet. He knew how bad it was. But beloved, if anybody ought to know how bad sin is, we ought to know about it today. Because if you want to know how bad God hates sin, you will find no better place to look than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Lord were to wink at sin, if the Lord made excuses for sin, He would have let His Son come down from the cross. He would not have made Him go to the cross. But instead, He made Him to be bruised for our iniquities. He made Him to be uh, uh, beaten and He made His beard to be plucked out. He he caused all of that to, to happen to His Son. I know they by wicked hands did it, but what I mean by that is he sent his son down to experience the worst death that could be experienced because God is not going to excuse sin. Sin is exceeding sinful. You want to know how bad sin is? Just look at Jesus on the cross. Because in that moment, God not only let him suffer those physical things, he turned his back on his son because he had become sin for us. Joseph knew this Without knowing exactly what was going to happen, he still knew God hates sin. By the way, if you notice in verse 11, it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business. And there was none of the men in the house, of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment saying lie with me i can just see her waiting watching joseph i can't get him here and i can't get him there but i'm going to watch him and when he get when i get him by himself i'll get him then and so when he goes in no doubt she goes in and you know something <laughs> she caught him by the garment she she physically gets hold of him and i want to tell you something beloved it's It's too late to pray now. Okay? Lord, help me. What should I do? No, it's too late at this point. If you hadn't already prayed and already decided what you're going to do, if you don't already know who you are and whose you are at this point, it's too late to be praying about it. Lord, I just don't know if I need to commit adultery with this one. Don't be praying about that. (laughs) Lord ain't interested in that kind of prayer. (laughs) You might be like Peter and yell out, Lord, save me. (laughs) Sometimes that's the only prayer you got time to pray. (laughs) But it's too late now to be praying about it. Joseph had to have made up his mind beforehand. And then he acted quickly and decisively. It says, and he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. I like that. You know, nobody else could get Joseph out, so he got him out himself. (laughs) I like that. There's a lot of situations, children of God, where nobody else can help you. Nobody else can get you out, so you've got to get you out, okay? (laughs) That's what Joseph did. See, Joseph was firm in his faith, and he was certain in his assessment of who he was. He knew who he was. Shakespeare's question, to be or not to be, that is a question. Hey, Joseph knew who he was. He knew he had to be who he was supposed to be. There's a song out there that Casting Crowns does called Who Am I? Meredith, uh, I think, used to sing it. Who am I? Listen to these words. Who am I? 
That's a good question, isn't it? Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? See, Joseph wasn't coming to God saying, look at me and who I am. He was asking the question, who am I? I'm nothing within myself. But I'm everything with God. I'm nothing in the flesh. I have no strength. I have no ability. In the natural man, I receive not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto me. But in the spiritual man, I am strong with the one who bought me and paid his life for me. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am a flower quickly fading. Here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. He knew who he was, but he also knew, still you hear me when I'm calling, Lord. You catch me when I'm falling and you've told me who I am. I am yours. I am yours. See, Joseph had to ask himself this question, but he knew the answer. I'm yours, God. I'm one of your children. And he was determined to serve his God. You know, he never forgot that his God was a big God who was steadfast and faithful. You remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Let's just turn there and I'll turn there and read it because I can quote it, but probably... I don't want to miss anything. Listen to this. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. This is a little different, by the way, than what you usually hear. Oh, the Lord won't put on you more than you can bear. You hear that all the time. I say it. I've said it. But that's not really what it says. Sometimes the things that come upon you are more than you can bear. And they will be more than you can bear until you remember that God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Notice here, in the midst of your troubles, first of all, you're not alone. You're not the first one that's ever experienced this loneliness, this pain, this sickness, this rejection, this uh, trouble or trial. You're not the only one. And, and by the way, uh, God is faithful. Where is God in the midst of your troubles? He's faithful. He's faithful and he will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will make with the temptation a way to escape. God was a is a faithful God. God is a big God. And, and he gives his children a way out. But listen, the way out's not always easy. And by the way, God isn't obligated to give you a second way out. <laughs> Don't say, well, I didn't want that way out. I'll take door number two. No, there may not be a door number two. You got one door and you better get you out as Joseph got him out. He expects you to take advantage of the opportunities that he provides. Well, as our time winds down, let me just say this. You continue reading here in verse 13 of Genesis 39. It came to pass. When she saw that he had left his garment in, his hand, in her hand and was fled forth. And by the way, let me just ask this question. Is the rest of this story, and he lived happily ever after? Does it say, and Joseph lived happily ever after? Because he did the will of God.
It says, it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them saying, see, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass as I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant unto me, uh, to me, that his wrath was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. That doesn't sound like happily ever after to me, does it you? <clears throat> Joseph needs a big God right about now, wouldn't you think? I tell you, beloved, fairy tales end with happily ever after, but real life sometimes ends with you in the prison. It doesn't always work out the way you think it should or the way our sense of justice and fairness says it ought to. And when it doesn't, that's when we need to remember that our God is a big God. Now remember, he's not guilty of what he's accused of. That would be different. If he had actually done what he said, what she says he did, that would be different. There's some principles of reaping and sowing and consequences. But here we are talking about someone who has been slandered, someone who has been falsely accused. And by the way, let me, let me just quickly, I know our time's up. I, I want to I take you on just one little side trip right here, just for a second. What do you think normally happened when a man got caught committing adultery with the captain of the Egyptian guard's wife? What, what do you think normally would happen? You know, they didn't have this sense of we're going to go to trial and appoint him a lawyer. We're going to do all this, you know, <coughs> off with his head, right? <laughs> Potiphar just maybe, just maybe knew his wife a little bit better than we think he did. You know, notice the first thing she did is she told them in verse 14, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us, telling these servants, talking about her husband. See, she's, there's some issues in this marriage. <laughs> there's some problems here. It's not a happily ever after marriage either. See, well, he brought, and then she says, look, you brought him in. I'm blaming you for this. You brought him in to do this. And Potiphar maybe just knew his wife a little too well to just kill Joseph outright. Maybe, maybe Joseph's reputation wasn't as badly damaged as he even thought it was. Because, you know, most of the time a strange woman is well known. Maybe the folks who knew Mrs. Potiphar really just felt sorry for Joseph. And you notice that it wasn't off with his head. It was, I'm going to just put you back in prison. Something's up here, I think. And again, this is some more evidence of God providentially protecting Joseph. Now, Joseph's in prison. He's not in the palace. He's in the prison. But look at verse 21 as we bring this to a close. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor 
in the sight of the keeper of the prison. You know, this God of Joseph's, you, you, just, you just can't get rid of him. You just, can't, you just can't seem to lose him. He just keeps coming back. I mean, this ought to be the end of, you know, you would think that the end of Joseph would have been when he was in a pit down in Israel or down in Dothan. But, but it wasn't. He's had this big God that kept delivering him out. And now he's risen up to the top. This is his second chance. Everything's going well. Oh my, well, no, it's, it's over for Joseph now. This ought to be the end of his story. But God is still on the scene. God is still with Joseph and he's showing him mercy and he's giving him favor. And verse 22 says, the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. Uh, just like in Potiphar's house, uh, he rose to the top. Now he's risen to the top again. And it says, the keeper of the prison in verse 23, looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Beloved, Joseph's God is a big God and he's big enough that when the second time Joseph falls the second time he's been cast down from a position of prosperity he is still with him and he is still blessing him and he is still raising him up and by the way Joseph's God is your God beloved he's our God and he's a big God big enough to trust in Big enough to trust in adversity. Big enough to trust in prosperity. Big enough to trust through slander. Big enough to trust through wrongful conviction and prison. He's big enough to overrule the trials and the tribulations of life and to make that which you do to prosper. That's the big God that we serve. So, who are you? Whose are you? We're God's. I am His, and He is mine. So, when you're tempted, remember whose you are and look for the way out. Leave your coat and get you out, okay? When the crowd is running for the cliffs and wanting you to go with them, remember whose you are and turn around. When circumstances threaten to destroy you, when the bills are piling up, you're laid off, you're diagnosed with cancer, you're divorced, you're lonely, you're lost among the madding crowd. Remember whose you are and press on. Remember, my beloved is mine and I am his. He's big enough to trust. He's big enough to trust and to serve in adversity and in prosperity, and in every downturn and upturn of life. Stay tuned. There's more to come. <laughs> we thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.